Hello, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 1st, 2021 edition of Digging Out. This program offers a means for getting us through and past November 3rd, December 3rd, January 3rd, or January 6th, 2021. With my special guests, we can collectively clear the debris from the last four days, four weeks, four years, for centuries, as well as many millennia. And now for today's guest, Kristen Poole, Ned B. Allen Professor of English Renaissance Literature at the University of Delaware and General Editor of the Rutledge Encyclopedia of the Renaissance World. She has a new book out that is a tool for the era, which is the subject of today's program. And I invite listeners to pick up their copy of this book entitled Christianity in a Time of Climate Change. It provides a crucial link in the climate debate. Her previous books include Early Modern Histories of Time, the periodizations of the 16th and 17th century England, Supernatural Environments in Shakespeare's England and Radical Religion from Shakespeare to Milton, Figures of Nonconformity in Early Modern England. I list these to demonstrate a feat which she's managed after completing a master's of sacred theology and participating with her local climate change reading group and her citizens climate lobby, Philadelphia chapter. In her words, between my church and CCL, I've been figuring out how I can use my talents in the mission to mitigate climate change and secure a livable world for our heirs, end of quote. Kristen Poole joins me from her home in Philadelphia. Welcome to Digging Out, Professor Kristen Poole. Thank you, Claudia. It's great to be with you. So a theologian, literature professor, walks into a climate change meeting, or was it a climate change bar, Professor Poole? Well, I first, I wanna take stock of how my humanities folks, they're reaching deep into their repertoire and they're connecting the dots with centuries old concerns to catastrophes in our time. Recently, I had a Habsburg scholar and she spoke about how autocratic leaders and strongman leaders, she's tracing them to autocratic leaders of our time. And now you, Kristen Poole, are taking your English Renaissance sacred theology to address climate change. This is really amazing. So that's just to say you've navigated your way out of a silo, away from English Renaissance and theology to eventually arrive at your lovely tome on climate. So were there other examples that you were able to see that got you started with raising your game and this to help in the future raise other people's game? Yeah, well, I've always been intrigued by thinkers who radiate outward. So I, of course, had no intention of setting out to write a climate change book. I decided in my mid-40s to go back and study theology because I was studying English Reformation literature, and I just got to a point where I realized I didn't understand the people I was reading. So that led me to go back for another master's in my mid-40s. And towards the very end, it took me 10 years to get that master's, uh, which is a long time, but I had a full-time job and two children, so I could only do it part-time. And so at the end of a 10-year journey, I was starting to wonder, well, 
why did I do this? And what am I going to do with this now? And I went to a talk by Shahir Masri, who's a scientist and wrote a book about climate change for lay readers. And I was just sitting there listening to him and there was sort of this big light bulb went on over my head. And I thought, you know, if this science guy can write a book on climate change, I can certainly write a book on climate change. So there at the very end of my studies, the book grew out of the master's thesis I had to write. And I had planned originally on writing something you know, a very specific problem of theology. And all of a sudden, it just exploded and everything came together. And I just thought, you know, this is my topic. This is what all of this history that I've been studying in these different ways of thinking about the world, it all leads to this. And I suddenly saw what it was that I could bring to the conversation as a literary scholar, as a type of historian, as someone who's been thinking theologically for a long time. And, you know, I think the main thing I see is bringing thing an emphasis of language that we use to talk about climate change, but also just thinking really deeply about social formations across the last two millennia, studying theology over, you know, a 10-year period. And a lot of that was historical work. It was such an eye-opener in terms of sort of long view transformations in cultural formations and the way that we imagine the world. Well, part of the problem of climate change is that it's a new way of imagining our relationship to the world that we, on the one hand, haven't really been used to thinking about. We don't really have thought models developed for climate change yet very much. And on the other hand, I think we can reach back into history and find other thought models that worked in different times and see if those can help us to articulate some of the challenges of climate change. And just, you know, how, how we imagine climate change. I think, think in some ways it's a failure of imagination. It's a failure of vocabulary. It's a failure of intellectual models and narrative it's a problem that humanity has never faced before. So we really don't have sort of preset narratives or models for processing what is happening to ourselves and to the world. And so I think have, having that really long view of not just human history, but human thought history and human imaginative history was what led up to the book and, and really kind of gave me the courage to write it. And we, I hope we'll be able to unpack some of those elements that you're talking about, but the be in the, in the most general sweep here, that this, as you said, this is the global environmental issue of climate change. It's, it's a scale that's never been faced by human beings. And it makes me wonder, although Christianity in the time of climate, the title, you're bringing up this religion. I just wonder if the problem isn't larger than many people's theology is the immensity of climate change more expansive than theology, all theologies? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I guess if you're thinking about God in the context of the cosmos and God is bigger than the cosmos and bigger than anything that our, you know, our puny little human brains can even begin to process, and if climate change is a modern issue on our own little teensy planet, then I would say no, climate change isn't bigger than theology. 
But I think that theology, even if people aren't religious, I think that there's a really rich, deep vocabulary associated with theology that, again, can help us to articulate the problems and can help us to imagine our way into framing issues related to climate change. And you do that beautifully. And that's why I really, really strongly urge people to get their own copy of Christianity in the time of climate, because it does map out so beautifully these constructs that are about us all the time. So I already mentioned about the silo of practicing academics that moving into other realms, but there's there's a silo to break down now here of consumers that our choices affect others. As you talk about, we need to think about what our choices, what the impact of that is on either the people in our same time frame, in other locations beyond our community, in our region, and around the globe, as well as in future generations. Our choices have such consequences that you map out. And so, and you talk about there's this culture of narcissism and helping ourselves to whatever we want in a consumer culture. Absolutely, there's an issue to pay more attention to our choices and to recognize the impact that our choices have. The problem with thinking about this as an individual consumer, I find it really almost impossible sometimes to figure out how to make these ethical choices And partly because it's just so complicated and the impact of our choices are really invisible to us and often impossible to trace. You know, if you're talking about something like a carbon footprint, I think what we're doing with so much of the climate change conversation is that we're individualizing a larger systemic problem. The transportation network remains carbon dependent. And I personally can't solve that on my own and my choice of blueberries to buy or not to buy the blueberries in Whole Foods also isn't gonna solve that. It's, it's a really systemic problem that's going to need systemic approaches. Um, you know, Carbon pricing is, is part of that equation. And so what I didn't want to do was send my readers or myself on a guilt trip about thinking that climate change is an individualized issue. And then also we could say it then becomes a personalized issue. I think we just have to make this revolution in thought where we recognize the systemic problem. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest on Digging Out is Kristen Poole, professor of English Renaissance literature at the University of Delaware, bringing promising tools in her book, entitled Christianity in a Time of Climate Change. I wanted though, pause for a moment though, in the kinds of interviews I have done where Greenpeace has made their case for that the fossil fuel sector has put the individual consumer on the hook for reducing the plastics while heavily producing plastics which are minimizing the choices that consumers can take. So actually we step back, there is this, it's a device that the industry is using to make it more untenable. That's one part. The other part is what you talk about is 
the value of a commodity is in the future is discounted versus the present value. And so there's that classic economic model that says, ah, use that commodity, extract that material. It's valued more now than it, it means less in the future. And that reinforcing consumerism to the detriment of those future generations that you keep your eye on. And I, you bring in all of those kinds of historic references to understand how through time, these kinds of moral decisions are being framed and set up. It's really, really helpful. So you mentioned about the importance of language and you take up the word choice framing, the I and the we. So, and you've already talked about a little bit about the individual. You talk about sin with a capital S and sin with a small s. And you talk about the individual and you talk about the ecosystem. In the interest of time, maybe either if you can sort of give quick references to how those different dichotomies break down, or um, we can we can add we can uh, un you have you unpack one in greater detail, and the other ones can be in our extended interview version. Okay, so there's kind of a, a couple of different questions in there. Lots of them, I know. Yeah. So if I can just go back to the idea of climate change as a language problem for a moment, just a couple of examples that come to mind. One is a really recent political um, analogy. So, you know, I live in Pennsylvania and I don't know if anyone noticed, we just had an election. Pennsylvania was a very important state in determining the outcome of that election. Pennsylvania and, had a gun pointed at its head, let's call it. <laughs> right, and one of the things that people were really concerned about was the way our mail-in ballots worked. We had what they called a security envelope. So your ballot had to go inside of the security envelope that went inside of another envelope. And some brilliant genius coined the term naked ballot. You didn't want to send in a naked ballot. And just by phrasing it that way, everyone's like, oh, I don't want my ballot to be naked. It, it just, people totally remembered it, right? right? So in fact, they ended up, they were worried it was gonna be a huge problem. They ended up with very, very few. If they had given us all these instructions, don't have your ballot come back without the security envelope, people would have ignored them. But naked ballot, that really, that really <laughs> struck a chord. And, and it codified how people were going to be compliant and not have yeah. their ballot thrown out. Yeah. The power of those two words, naked ballot, did the work it had to do. And another two words that did the work was ozone hole. You know, if you remember when we were talking about there's a hole in the ozone layer and that image of a hole. And again, I'm not a scientist, but, you know, from what I've been was reading about that in the process of writing this book, it's not actually a hole. There's a thinning or, but there's no hole. But somebody coined that phrase, ozone hole, and everybody freaked out. And you just had this big vision of our planet and the atmosphere surrounding it with a big hole. And so people moved really quickly because of that, that term that just, it was so visual, it was so visceral, and it really prompted a lot of response. Unfortunately, we haven't landed on something as succinct as naked ballot or ozone hole for the climate situation that we're in right now. 
So first we were talking about global warming, which is still a phrase that people use and you still will hear it, but that doesn't sound very threatening, right? It sounds like, you know, warm, it's kind of a positive, cozy, fuzzy word. I've noticed the British, they talk about global heating as if that makes it a little more urgent, but global heating, eh, you know, and so that didn't really work. And then we've switched over to climate change, but no, I've wondered if the word change in there just sounds so threatening to people who hate change and so many people do hate change. So even by calling it climate change, if that just causes people to immediately sort of throw up their guard and go into denial and resistance mode, there's Catherine Hayhoe uses um, the term global weirding to talk about, you know, it's not just that the planet is gradually going to get warmer on a universal level, that there's, there are going to be these weird changes in weather patterns. Maybe that helps, but I kind of find that a little too playful and also, you know, kind of positive. You can think of t-shirts, you know, keep Austin weird, whatever. So I just, I, I feel like part of what we're suffering from right now is a lack of a good term to even talk to each other about what's happening. And then if you layer on the fact that climate change as a term has become so politicized. I was reading this article once about, I don't know, there's a city council or something that was discussing this. And they decided they would talk about a changing climate and they could all agree to use that term, but they wouldn't use the word climate change because it was like a lefty term or something. And, you know, at the end of the day, okay, a rose is a rose. If you want to call it a changing climate instead of climate change, doing something about it, that's fine. But I feel like we've got this linguistic void. We can't, the semantic void, we can't seem to find a good way to express what is happening to the planet. So I, I think I read the same thing that the citizens climate lobby were preparing meeting different congressional members, this new congressional session, and they knew to reach out to Republican congressional members that, that changing climate was going to let them in the door, let them stay a little while in those offices where climate change wouldn't work. And other citizens climate lobby forums that I've also attended where the expert said, when they go to Montana and talk to farmers, they don't say change, they just say climate. And then the farmer CEOs let them in and they discuss very pragmatically how to go from there forward. So that has tied everybody up in knots, but. So if we think about individual, just before we lose that, that great word. So individual might be my favorite word in the English language because I find the history of this word to be so fascinating. The word itself does a 180 degree turn in about a half century. Peter Stallybrass is the one I read who first called attention to this. Individual around the time, around 1600, means indivisible, that which cannot be divided, that which cannot be separated out. And it is a term that comes out of Trinitarian theology. So it's about talking, you know, how do we find words to talk about the relationship of a three-person God? Okay, so individual, they're indivisible, they're totally interconnected. 
fast forward to, I don't know, 1680, so maybe a little bit more than a half century, and the word now means the exact opposite of indivisible. It has come to mean separate and distinct. And just the power of that word and the privileging of that word in different social contexts tells you a lot about the underlying social structure, the underlying social values, how people are imagining themselves in relationship to one another. So we moved from a world of where individuality in the former sense of indivisibility, that which can't be separated out, that was the value, you were part of community, to a world of individuality where same exact word, but completely different meaning, where now individuality means that the value is on being separate, being unique, and divided from other people. So the reason I find that word so fascinating is it just it encapsulates historical change in that one term. So I think that's really interesting. And then, Kristen, to that point, though, was it, there were a lot of players in that, that half of a century where the Calvinists were sort of like the individuals damned from the beginning and they will never redeem themselves. There was enlightenment where the individual had such promise. There were all those things that were pinned on the individual that were a positive and a negative. Do I understand that correctly in that particular time frame where that individual notion was changing? Yeah, to a degree. I think the Calvinism that you're talking about, that form of Calvinism is a bit earlier before this change. But yeah, there's a lot of whether or not this new meaning of individual it's both positive and negative, I think. You've, you start to get enlightenment thinkers who really privilege something like individual rights. But at the same time, that move towards being individual as in separated out is also associated with a yearning to be part of a larger community. So I I think it's a troubled word. Yes. And I think that the word, it kept echoes or maybe the... um, Well, um, it's an imprinting on the American social response that you talk about. Yeah. Which is where the the framers are drawing on the literature from that period where where individual is now changing. And that imprinting is hugely consequential and how we are equipped to deal with the inordinately large climate crisis. Yeah, so, you know, basically our country gets formed and the intellectual basis for our country is established at the moment when this term individual has taken on this new valence of meaning separate and discrete and and that's the social value. So that's the image that we're made in as Americans is to have the separateness, you know, and you can just think of all of the ways in which that's sort of an iconic American identity, rugged individualism. And part of what I talk about in the book is, I guess I push back a little bit on some of the environmental activists like Bill McKibben, who I think is fabulous. It's not, you know, a critique of his position. But one thing that he said is the 
the single most important thing an individual can do to help fight climate change is to stop being an individual. Well, okay, how does that work? Like, how, how do I stop being an individual? And do I even want to stop being an individual? So just pragmatically, philosophically, psychologically, I don't find that very helpful advice in terms of how I'm approaching the question of climate change, which is why I think to resuscitate that older meaning of the word as indivisible and to keep it sort of paradoxically in tension with the new meaning of the word, meaning separate and discrete, you know, if you can hold both of those meanings together for yourself and in your life, that you are both separate and connected, interconnected, the people around you, the planet, the people who aren't around you, the people on the other side of the planet, the people of the past, the people of the future, you know, maintaining that sort of paradoxical awareness of both your own identity and your own choices, but also the way that you are completely within this larger interconnected network of people and planet. Well, I think in Kristen, though, I th- as a desperate man, Bill McKibben is trying to, in a pragmatic way, really jumpstart the collective action and see the individuals as massing up and responding with all of the urgency that he sees. You know, and I, he's probably he spent as much time working on chronicling climate as you have in that very careful parsing of the language over centuries. So that the two of you meet, <laughs> the two oh, of you yeah. meet in your pragmatism to get on with acting over just talking about what you right. talk about in the beginning. And again, of your I didn't, book. you know, I, I didn't intend that in any way to be a critique of Bill McKibben, who's a climate hero, absolutely. And I think it's also helpful, though, we were talking earlier about consumer choices, point I just kind of gave up and walked away. But I think if you're working with this word individual, in terms of of responses to climate, yes, absolutely, it's systemic, there have to be systemic solutions. But a system is made up of lots of individual parts. So if all of us as individuals move more rapidly to electric vehicles as we can, do take our own actions to limit our carbon emissions and the carbon emissions that are associated with however we're living. So I think it's it's a both and thinking really about your own individual actions, not as meaningless because those are part of that larger network. So yeah, I, I, I totally get what he's trying to accomplish. The word itself, I think, is so charged. So in preparation for today's interview, you've been mulling over what happened in Texas, the huge deep freeze and the flooding that resulted from the freeze, flooding inside of residences and facilities. I want to know if you would like to, what what your reflections have been on what took place in Texas. There's there's part of it is the rapture that is the is like the theological culture of Texas. There is also the kind of as you wrap your book up, you talk about Icarus and versus the sort of Christ, Christ redemption models and how uh, what how Icarus might have been the 
ERCOT business model didn't work so well for Texas. <laughs> so I don't know what parts of those were the ones that were floating to the top and you've been churning on the most, Kristen. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, first of all, my heart totally goes out to the people in Texas. Uh, we had here in Philadelphia several winters ago, I think the number was 19, we had 19 blizzards. And in the midst of that, the exit pipe from our house that connects to the, the sewer system out in the street broke and it was an old pipe and it caved inward or something happened. Um, so we, and it was, it was not related to what was going on, but it was in the middle of a, of a string of 19 blizzards and we lost the water in our house. And I, I realized with that experience that, you know, you can go without electricity, um, but you certainly can't leave uh, lead a modern life with when your water goes. You know, the kids were little, we couldn't run the sink, we couldn't flush a toilet, we couldn't do the dishwasher. And of course we couldn't get any plumbers to come out because everybody's pipes were freezing. So I, I kind of, I, I was so sympathetic seeing all of these accounts of people. So even, even if there might be some people in that mix who have been avid climate deniers, although that's a rapidly shrinking portion of the population, um, you know, it wasn't a moment for schadenfreude. But no. I think, you know, some of what I was reading about people's responses, and I read a number of people who said they felt like they were just being cursed. And I think we, it, events happen when these um, really dramatic weather events happen. Again, I think we personalize what is systematic. So in that moment, you are trying to feed your children. You're trying to figure out, you know, oh my God, how do you change diapers? How do you, how do you get through this on a real, you know, on an individual level as you're trying to get through it? Minute to minute. Yeah, and I was thinking at one point, we used to have an old house down in Delaware, and I can't remember what year this was, in the late 90s, Hurricane Floyd came through and our basement started flooding. Um, literally, you know, there'd be one spot and water would start pouring through the basement wall and we took a bucket and, and it turned into that scene with the magician's nephew from um, the Disney film in Fantasia. You no, know, okay. it was just, we spent the entire day bailing out our basement my arms almost fell off and I realized later we almost got electrocuted because we never thought about the electric the stuff yeah. going on the, with the heating but in that moment you're not thinking oh gosh I'm part of a larger environmental atmospheric system that is responsible for this you're just trying to handle that moment I'm hoping that as these events happen more and more people just have that moment, okay, this is what climate change looks like. And to, again, not only personalize it and individualize it, but to recognize that this is that interconnection, that when this happens, you are part of this larger system, larger, lots of systems, larger energy delivery system, larger atmospheric systems. So to make that move to come out of these things and think, okay, that's not just 
a bad thing that happened to me. It's not just I personally am being cursed, but to have that full recognition, I am in a system and the system has gone wrong, is going deeply wrong. What can I and what can we do about it? So yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that just as I've been reading responses and how much people just internalize or, or personalize what is happening to them without making that larger connection. And I, I want to say to your earlier point about language mattering, that if we were to say global warming or climate change, it would be discredited to some extent for us a, a sort of in a simple line of thinking is this is a winter front that that moved flow down all the way down the continent to the southern portions of Texas, but but it was it is a warming of the Arctic that created that front of cold to to move that far south. So so the language made the Texas debacle all the more complicated. Yeah, and I think the. Uh, you know, just to, to kind of go back to that question of language, as language is always developing and giving us new ways of thought, right? It's not just that you invent a new word. The new word partly names a thought that didn't have a label, but also partly creates a thought that maybe you didn't have before. So I was really interested when I was writing this, this book, I sort of went down the rabbit hole of the history of that word ecosystem, right? which is only a little bit older than I am as a word. You know, it's from the, um, uh, I, I think the first time it was used, no, that was environment. The first time environment was used, I think was 1939 and it was a German word. So if you think even, you know, the word environment is historically a really new word. The word ecosystem, um, I think it was developed in, I think it was sort of came into being in the 40s, just before the Cold War. And if you're not thinking in terms of ecosystem, if that's not part of your mentality, that all of these things are connected. Now I know that atmospheric patterns are different from ecosystems, but it's a mode of thought. It's understanding how things are interconnected. So if you wanna think of, I don't know if you could say a weather ecosystem, I'm sure that's not absolutely correct in terms of the biological usage of that word, but by now that word ecosystem, you know, you can talk about a computer ecosystem or a neighborhood ecosystem or- It's used know, all the time in, in business and in technology. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's like so, infrastructure kind of part. Right, of so it's expanded. So I think if you're, if you're someone who's, who's thinking in terms of ecosystem and not an ecosystem that is extrinsic to you, not something that is outside of you or you are outside of it, but that you are living out your life in the middle of an ecosystem. And then to realize, wow, part of my ecosystem stretches all the way up to the North Pole. And what is happening in that part of the ecosystem is going to have ramifications for where I am. And so I 
kind of wonder if I, I haven't coined the perfect phrase like naked ballots yet for climate change, but some phrase or some expression that captures that concept of ecosystem. And, you know, ecosystem, you can do this great thing on, on Google. You can track the history of a word and when a word became prominent. So ecosystem went along as a pretty rarefied bit of scientific jargon for a long time. And then I think it was in the early 60s, all of a sudden the word takes off and it just it shoots up when you do your Google analytics. And there was a moment before people were thinking of themselves as part of an ecosystem. And then there was another moment, like within a decade, it had become a really common word that people would use. You know, it went from being this, this very specialized scientific term to a common household word. With the introduction of that word comes a whole different way of understanding. So toying with, you know, what would be a good new term for climate change that would bring in the concept of ecosystem, planetary ecosystem that we are inside of? But yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, maybe for climate scientists, the word climate does it because climate, you're talking about systems. But I think for most people, climate doesn't evoke an ecosystem that they are living their lives out within. And I think we really need something that is more about where people dwell and live and they are inside of this thing that we are transforming because of our burning of fossil fuels. You're here for that project. Good luck. Keep, keep me on <laughs> speed dial where you summon yeah. that, that all important expression. I think it's, uh, it's an active project of anyone who's feeling the ferocity of, and the urgency of this climate. I mean, yeah. climate crisis is where there's a, like a branching off and that, that's the sort of sub-orthodoxy of in the debate. So, I think there are so many interesting things that you unpackage and so many threads that are really important for people to pick up and read this whole book and so many wonderfully well-turned expressions too. And as you're beginning to wrap your entire book, you say that the mission of the project, it's that the most critical figure is that, and I'm quoting you, that 9% of Americans consider climate change a religious issue. Let's make that the last of the points that you cover. What this means to taking up Christianity in a time of climate change and going forward. Yeah, for me, that's, that's the core mission of the book. So that statistic about 9% of Americans consider climate change to be a religious issue comes from the Yale Program for Climate Communications. And they do really extensive ongoing polling of American attitudes towards that. And when I saw that figure, 9%, my jaw just kind of dropped. And that means that I, I will sort of broadly say people of faith have done a really poor job of connecting dots in terms of ethical responsibility and the mm -hmm. repercussions of climate for however, you know, whatever theological language you want to cast that in. 
if you think about the neighbor, I think we've made a lot of the religious writing on climate change has really been focused on nature, the natural world, and ideas of creation care and stewardship. And I am, I love the natural world. It's not that I want to disregard the natural world or trees or polar bears or anything. I was just really struck though at how seldom when I started reading around in religious books on climate change, how seldom people talked, uh, authors would talk about the, the impact on other human beings of climate change. So that's the focus of my book is what are we doing to each other? And what you talk about to each other in terms of where you you speak about it geographically and you talk about it over generations into the future. Yeah. I mean, neighbor's a big one. Geographically, temporally, and, you know, you can, it's the language of neighbor and you can think of the global neighbor. One of the terms I did coin in the book is to think about people of the future as our inheritors, because I would find these often sort of contorted expressions of the children of our children of our children, or people would say things about, we want to leave a better world for our grandchildren. And that's completely true. It just started to feel a little bit like a Hallmark card without a lot of theological heft to that. So I tried to give a name to the people of the future by calling them the inheritors. And there's a religious valence to that. If you think of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the world. So there's that kind of spiritual sense of the inheritors. There are for some of us, if we have children, it is our actual children. But also I wanted to open it up so it's not just about caring for your own descendants or your, you know, your own children but all of the people that are going to come after us. One big problem I had though in writing the book, I mean, I wrote it over about a two year period and even two year period, there were all of these moments where I had to go back into the manuscript and cross out the future tense and put it in the present tense right? because we're just accelerating and you would have climate disaster after climate disaster the fires in California, the fires in Australia. The hurricanes. Um, the hurricanes, yeah. The drought, the, the flooding. I, my family, um, again, is from Michigan. And last summer, I was, um, we have a little cottage on Lake Michigan that's been in the family since, I don't know, forever. And there's been such extensive um, flooding in the Midwest for the last couple of years, that the lake level is so high. And even during the time that we were there, there were these big dunes, sort of sand dunes on mm-hmm. the edge of the on the edge of the lake. We're wondering, is the cottage going to fall into the lake? And it seemed at first kind of preposterous. And we were there for a couple of weeks. And one day when we were there, the sand dune, you know, we're talking really pretty high bluffs. It just, it calved the way you see oh, like wow. having, you know, and a whole tree just went into the lake. It's like, well, okay. Cause the lake had come to us. The lake was right there. And then how much worse can this be? And then that afternoon it calved again. 
And, you know, these are, this is sand, as I understand it, left from the last ice age. It's not, you know, the lake level's always rising and falling. Um, and it was almost like if you ever have, you know, your worst nightmare, say, you know, you have dreams of your house being on fire. And then one day your house is on fire. <laughs> you know, that was my, one of my worst anxiety things. One of my worst anxieties was that this entire, we would just lose, we would lose it all. And there I was standing and watching the entire embankment just collapse into the lake. So all of these things that we thought were, you know, in a way, the future is us, all these prognostications about what was going to happen to the people of the future. Every day, you, you know, you look at the paper and here's, here's one climate disaster coming from one direction. Here's, you know, here's a drought, here's a flood, here's this. So yeah, I had to keep kind of figuratively scribbling out the, the future tense and putting it in the present. That was very distressing. But I do hope that just to be thinking about the implications of our actions in terms of the harm that they do other human beings. And if that's not a religious issue, to think about the implications of your actions and how they can harm other human beings, I don't know what religion is. It just, to me, it was just such a no-brainer that this is a topic that needs to be taken up and positioned within a discourse of faith if you're a person for whom that matters. And also, like I was saying earlier, I think there are a lot of theological terms or a lot of religious expression that can help to articulate the problem, even if you're not a person of faith. You know, I just think we have this ready ethical vocabulary sitting there and different ways of conceptualizing things, you know, like going back to the word individual and the Trinity that can help us to give some kind of shape to the thought, shape to our thoughts about climate change. Because right now, I feel like the thoughts are unbounded. They're amorphous. It's free flowing anxiety without having a framework to look at the problem, address the problem, discuss the problem in a way that's not just about personal guilt. And if it's just about personal guilt, I don't think that's a motivator. So I really think we have this rich, deep, historic vocabulary coming out of Christianity and all the world religions that we can use to help people to conceptualize the magnitude of climate change but also really to think about it as an ethical issue and not just a scientific problem or a political problem or an economic problem. This is an ethical problem. And here's some of the ways that we can discuss it in really productive ways. As we conclude here, how you take up the existing body of theological historic work that, and I quote you, it was such a pithy line early on in your book. And you say, today, of course, it is fashionable to think outside of the box, but this is not a call to abolish boxes themselves. So that's sort of the way to march with this book. And I will try to use this book, Kristen Poole, to laser-like move in on my interviews with candidates for political office and ask them about what their 
policy platforms say about them advancing their Good Samaritan role in the community. I will try so hard to use it that way. Yeah, I, th I think that's really helpful. And I think it's also helpful just in terms of going back to where we see hope. There is movement, political movement on this control. Youth attitudes towards climate change, young Republican attitudes towards climate change. I think I saw a study that I think it was Democrats and Republicans, maybe under 30. The two issues on which their attitudes were very close was on climate change and LBGT rights. So even within conservative circles, there's pressure coming from younger people to effect some kind of policy or some sort of governmental response. But I think, you know, for someone who is a self-proclaimed Christian, a person of faith, to not connect, how can you look at those people in Texas and not use that Good Samaritan parable? You know, how can you not be helping these people once you recognize that it's our actions that are causing this harm? Thank you, Kristen Poole for being on Digging Out today. I really appreciate your taking the time to join me. Oh, it was absolutely my pleasure. My guest was Kristen Poole, professor of English Renaissance literature at the University of Delaware, and she has written the book entitled Christianity in a Time of Climate Change. Talk to you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone.